0: Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. since through the law comes knowledge of sin, Father, thank you for preserving your word, and thank you that you have promised to make it effectual unto everyone that hears. And so, Lord, may you give us ears to hear; may our minds be attentive to your truth. For the person that's not converted is yet to know Jesus Christ and the liberation from what we are describing. May they be uh, entered into the kingdom today. And, And Father, for your children, may we be reminded of the world that we live in, and may we be more praiseworthy for what we've been delivered from. And may you deepen our burden for those still in the bondage of sin, Satan, and self, and that we would be a people passionate about the gospel. And Lord, in a very real way, that you might use this service to draw attention to Christ, revive us where needed. And that you do, truly would be honored as you do your work among us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We've been working our way uh, through the second section of Romans chapter 3. Uh, in this section, Paul is bringing to bear upon all by the written word of God the condemnation that is just due them. They all fall under the wrath as it is written, Uh, In verse 9 and 10, he would uh, bring all of humanity together in his final shot uh, against them. He began in chapter 1, verse 18, bringing everyone uh, under condemnation, primarily the Gentiles, through the witness of creation. Uh, He's proceeded on to uh, bring the Jew to their realization of their arrogance and the blindedness of their hearts because they think that they will escape judgment by the, the privileges that they have. And he would say, no, your privileges do not bring you uh, free from God's judgment. And then as he comes back to Gentile and Jew together in verses 9 through 20, uh, he would open up the door beginning in verse 21 of the glorious gospel of of Jesus and how we are delivered uh, from all the things we've just looked at, the condemnation, the wrath that's due us by the gospel of Christ. And in verses 9 through uh, through 20, and in particularly 9 through 18, we see the human condition all around us. We also see the description of the conduct that happens because of the human condition. In verses 10 through 12, we won't read that by way of review, uh, but what I would remind you that Paul is defining the human condition It's always the starting place, In dealing with God, what we are is produces what we do. That carries over not only as sinners, but also as Christians. Your spirituality is not measured by what you do. Your spirituality is first and foremost measured by what you are in Christ, which produces what you do. And so in the human condition, in verses 10 through 12, Paul would remind us and the recipients of his letter to the Roman Christians, that there are none righteous, no one understands, no one seeks God. And he is defining total depravity. Man is not partially broke. Man does not have the ability to choose God. Man is dead in trespasses and sin. They have a morally destitute heart. There is no righteousness. They have a corrupt mind. They're incapable of thinking godly thoughts or God-centered thoughts. No one understands. And their will is held captive by sin, Satan, and self so that no one is able to turn aside. And then we begin last week in verses 13 uh, through 18 and noted the description, or I should say the, uh, the actions of the human condition. This is what totally depraved people do. And we began with speech in verses 13 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And Paul would use the graphic metaphors of the open grave and the poisonous viper to identify what spews forth from the totally depraved individual. It is destructive speech. It is deceptive speech. It is poisonous speech. And again, as a reminder, just because we're Christians, oh, I wish it was so, but that is not totally eradicated from us. Is that we still have within us the viper that wants to spew out poison in moments of emotionally charged situations where we say things that are very hurtful. We also have the potential, as the open grave, to send forth speech that the stench is destructive. It's the stench of death. And how many times, as Christians, even we have said things we wish we did not have, should not have said, or could have, or, or wish we would have restrained? And we have not, and we've reaped much damage in relationships. So Paul would now move on into the ungodliness in their actions, in their actions from speech. To action. Verse 15: their feet are swift to shed blood. In their past are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. We see the progression of the depravity of man, or I should say, regression. The mind to the heart to speech, and now to feet. It's from the thinking, it's in the affections, it comes out in speech. And now in feet. Paul takes us from sins of words to sins of works, sins of speech to sins of action. And as Paul would, as he did with speech, he would also do now with actions. He refers to the oracles of God. This section is connected to verse 10 as it is written. As I mentioned in the introduction, Paul brings. To bear upon these Jews and these Gentiles, not his opinion and what he has observed, though it certainly gives evidence of the depravity of man by what he saw in Corinth, from when he where he wrote this letter, he's immersed in, in 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 the cesspool of Corinthian behavior, and he sees all around the very things that he describes in Romans one. But now he would say to the Jews who would boast of the oracles of God he would say these very oracles is what brings you to condemnation in your speech as well as in your action. And when he says in verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood, he's referring back to the Old Testament reference of Isaiah 59. And he would say to these knowledgeable Jews from the prophet Isaiah, their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their past. They have made their roads crooked. No one treads on them who knows peace. In a very real way, Isaiah 59 is Romans 1 through 3. Now as we look at this description of the actions of the wicked, he says their feet are swift their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. There's, again, there's, there's the language of a very vivid picture. Feet are used for walking. Paths are directions. And so we want to look at three truths concerning these totally depraved individuals and their actions. From sins of words to sins of works. And the first thing in verse 15 is the direction that the wicked travel. The direction that the wicked travel. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Shed blood is defined as toward violence. The first recorded sin was man against God, Adam and Eve. The second recorded sin was man against man. The first recorded sin separated man from God. The second recorded sin separated man from man. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, we find the first example of feet that are swift to shed blood in the brother Cain. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. His feet were swift to shed blood. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And ever since, humanity has been marked by violence. Marked by gross violence. Not long out of the garden when man sinned against God, man sinned against man, and brought the first murderer into the experience of the human. The direction of the wicked from birth are always towards violence. It could be just restricted in violence of speech. But just look around at our society, as I will mention, and we will see it's far beyond just speech. Now, back in verse 15, we get the word swift. Swift is an interesting word. Uh, It certainly implies a, a rapid going after, an attentional act. It only appears eight times in the Scripture, and seven of them are in the Revelation seven in the Revelation, and here in Romans 3.15. Its its literal definition means sharp or keen, describing the edge of the sword. In the Revelation, it appears three times as the sharp sword that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. In Revelation 1, John's description or vision of Jesus, of the two-edged sword. In Revelation 2, his letter to Pergamum. Again, the sword of his mouth, his word. And then in Revelation 19, on the white horse with the two-edged sword, reaping wrath and judgment upon the wicked. Four other times in the Revelation, appears in chapter 14. It describes the sickle, the sharp sickle used by the angels to harvest the earth. First is a gathering of believers, followed by the angel gathering unbelievers for wrath. That gives us a, a better understanding when we see the word use in the revelation of the swift, fierce, destructive power of the sword. The sharpness of the words from the Lord Jesus as he brings judgment through, through his word upon the nations. The sharp harvest of a sharp sickle that the angels are reaping up people the just uh, in their just resurrection and the unjust to the unjust. But in the Romans passage, unlike the Revelation passage, is the swiftness of the sword in the Revelation is always holy action. The swiftness in the Romans passage is always wicked action. To shed blood is to execute willful, unbridled, heartless violence upon others. And so Paul describes the state of humanity, and and, and this applies to all of us. You may sit there and maybe dig in and say, well, I'm I'm not a murderer. And I would say, have you ever been angry at someone? For the Lord Jesus would say that anger is just like murder. Or you would say, but I'm not like those out there. I'm, I'm against abortion. I'm against all this shedding of innocent blood. I understand that. But the Bible said there's none righteous, no, not one. And we may not be swift in action, but perhaps we're swift in speech. Philip Doddridge said, quote, their feet, the wicked, are swift to run towards places where they have appointed to shed the blood of the innocent, this is a purposeful, heinous act upon image bearers to slaughter image bearers. Proverbs 1, the opening of the wise counsel of Solomon to his son. He says, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason, premeditated murder. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their past, for they run to evil. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Think about our wicked culture. And think about the shedding of innocent blood, and thinking about the abuse that occurs by feet that are swift to shed blood, swift to rain violence upon the innocent. Child pornography. Domestic abuse, human trafficking, mass shootings, abortion, elderly abandonment, and you could add to my list. We live in a culture of death. We live in a culture that is over the top with feet swift to shed blood, and it's even in the legislation, legislative processes of our government is that we are a people that are swift to shed blood. Since the turn of the 20th century, and this, da- this data is a little old, but that's what makes this data even much more profound and eye-opening. Since the turn of the 20th century, twice as many American citizens have been slain in private acts of murder than have been killed in all the wars of our entire history. According to researcher Arnold Barrett of MIT, a child born today in any one of the 50th largest cities in the United States has the chance of one in 50 of being murdered. Dr. Bennett estimated that a baby born in the 1980s is more likely to be murdered than an American soldier in World War II of being killed in battle. This research is 20 years old. How much more now, as daily we read and see the slaughter of people in our largest cities, and now it carries over into rural areas, shootings in schools, shootings in grocery stores, parking lots, Their feet are swift to shed blood. And friends, that's what happens when Romans 1 unfolds and God turns them over. When he turns them over to inward lust. When he turns them over to outward manifestations of inward lust. And then he finally says, I'm done. I'm turning you over to a reprobate mind. And when a debased mind rules a society, they are swift to shed blood. They are shit. They are swift to wreak havoc and violence. And why? Because of what Paul said in verses 10 through 12. The totally depraved humanity. A morally destitute heart, a corrupt mind, and a captive will. There is no amount of secular, secular rehabilitation. No amount of education. No amount of legislation or government intervention will change the direction of the wicked. Their direction is towards violence. They travel the direction or the path of violence. And there's only one thing that will change that course. It's new birth. It's being born again, encountering the gospel of Jesus Christ and embracing him as your only hope is to change a heart bent towards wickedness to a heart of righteousness because he gives you that heart. So the first action we see... Their feet are swift as shed blood. The direction of the wicked. It's towards death, destruction, and violence. Now look at uh, verse 16. Here's the second action of the totally depraved person or humanity. Not only the direction the wicked travel, but the carnage that the wicked leave. The carnage that the wicked leave. He would say in their path or in their direction are ruin and misery. The word ruin also translates destruction. And it denotes breaking in pieces or shattering, causing total devastation. Misery is a general term, meaning trouble or hardship or distress. The picture I see here, he says in their past, what's behind them is the carnage labeled ruin and misery. One of the things I like to do um, when we we're underway in the middle of nowhere uh, in the Navy, I loved going out after i get off watch or, and just go out, get some fresh air. I'd go back towards the, to the flight deck or towards the aft and maybe say hi to the aft lookout and watch the wake of the ship, especially when you're doing high speeds and you watch the wake of the ship. That wake lasts a long time. Depends on the size of the ship, I mean, but nevertheless, you would see this wake. And what was, what was the wake illustrative of? It was of confusion of confused waters, of something being disturbed that wasn't like it was. The wake of the of the, of the wicked, the wake of the, of totally depraved individuals is confusion and destruction, misery. Now, as we identified, as we identified the, some of the very heinous ways that the wicked act in society with the destruction and with violence with their past. What about the carnage of ruin and misery? Every one of us have been tainted and been touched by such difficulties in our life. Look around at society and look at the carnage that sin has caused. Look at carnage in families that have been ruptured and fractured. Look at the carnage in relationships that have occurred due to the wickedness lies within man. And like sins of speech, it's important that we don't put on the pharisaical hat and say it's out there. we got to be extremely careful because like speech, that our speech can be like the poisonous viper. Like our speech can be like the open grave. Don't dismiss that our, our feet cannot be swift to cause damage don't dismiss that the carnies that we may lay behind our wakes personally isn't damaging to others in relationships. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, and this is the application for us, it's so easy to read this and say it's out there. Or it's so easy to read and say that used to be me. And the answer to to those statements is yes, it is. It is out there. And yes, we were once these. But oh, how I wish entire sanctification was true. Because just as it is out there, the potential is in here. It's still in here. Is that I still had the potential with my speech and with my action to be swift to cause damage and to be swift to cause violence. Paul would write to the Galatians this very serious warning for Christians. Galatians 5, 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. That's in the context of a church. Alexander Strzok, he wrote some excellent books on leadership, elders, deacons. He's got a new one that came out. It's a couple of years old, but it's fairly new based on some of the things I read. <laughs> but he wrote a book on uh, um, on conflict the title of the book is if you bite and devour one another biblical principles for handling conflict it was to christians it's based on this galatian passage you bite and devour one another that you be not consumed by one another he wrote a very interesting uh, illustration that i want to read to you because i think it's very appropriate as part of that application is don't fall prey to the deception to think that you're immune to these sins. We can stop a very good work in our church by the very description of the wicked. Ungodly speech, ungodly actions. This is the illustration that Strock would use. As I read this, I thought about how the other applications are in the life of the Church. And friends, if we want to maintain a unity among us, and we want to maintain a glowing testimony, not perfect, but sincere in the culture, then we must be keenly aware of the potential that lies within us. Here's what Strock wrote. Chapel Hill Church, a large Bible-believing church, invited an evangelist for a week of special messages. At the end of the week, the evangelist challenged the congregation to develop a deeper devotion to Christ and to be more committed to sharing the gospel. Sounds good. Then, without showiness, coercion, or endless appeals, he invited people to come to the front of the auditorium or sanctuary and kneel with him in prayer. This wasn't a plea to make a decision for Jesus. This was simply an invitation without showiness, for these people to come forward just to pray. His messages had touched many people's hearts in the church, and they responded. But this church was not accustomed to altar calls. And as the meeting ended, a prominent church member expressed to all within earshot his disagreement with the evangelist's altar call. Begin trouble. His loud, angry words and facial expressions shocked those around him. He accused the evangelist of unscriptural practices and emotional manipulation. He even threatened to leave the church if the leadership did not deal immediately with the situation. Upon hearing the angry man's accusation, some people jumped to defend the evangelist. You see the embers now of a split. They saw that God had used the evangelist to revive their spiritually dry church and supported his challenge to greater evangelism. Noble calls. They accused those who opposed the altar call of being narrow-minded traditionalists who always resisted change. They also accused them of being insensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading and of not caring for the lost. More poison. Other people sided with the angry complainer, claiming that the evangelist was preaching a gospel of easy believism. They made slanderous remarks about the evangelist's motives. Never a good thing, and character and labeled anyone who agreed with him as liberal. They also attacked the church leaders, saying that they lacked spiritual discernment. They went so far as to ask the church leadership to resign, claiming they had not had sinned against the church by inviting a wolf in sheep's clothing to preach. Soon, gossip and rumor, rumors lit up the phone lines. Past grievances against one another were rekindled and hurtful accusations flew in every direction. Angry, inflammatory speech, the speech of a viper, became the mode of communication. Misinformation, fear, suspicion, and distrust abounded. Friends and family members were recruited to choose sides. The church leadership communicated poorly with the congregation and the anger and hatred escalated within a year Chapel Hill Church split into two separate groups each group claiming to be defending God's truth there was no desire on the part of either group to seek reconciliation they were happy to be done with one another Strock would go on to say although the name Chapel Hill Church and this this account are both fictional but the behavior is real the behavior is real The description of this fictional fight at Chapel Hill Church is not an exaggeration. It reflects the attitudes and behaviors seen in countless other church fights and splits. You know what was missing there? The evidence of people being controlled by the new birth. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, um, goodness, self-control. I think I got them all. The point Strock makes, and the point I want to tie into the text we're looking at, is that we can cause severe damage just like the totally depraved people when we get our eyes off of the centrality of Christ and the gospel. And what was missing in this church, we can put a template in on churches that we've known of, and sadly, maybe even times in the history of our church, is that these things occur because you don't like the music. You don't like a program. You don't like the direction of the leadership. There's so many things you don't like this preference not being adhered to. So the point I want to get at here is that their their feet are swift to shed blood and that in their wake is ruin and misery. How many churches have had their candlestick removed and how many churches have developed a dead no witness to the community because of the very things like that? And the answer is many, many. So the actions of the totally depraved they're directed down the path of death and violence. They leave carnage of ruin and misery destruction even in the context of Christian fellowship. And so when you read Romans 3 and you see the state of the depraved number one thank God that you were once that and now you're delivered if you're a Christian. Secondly be humbled and realize that the potential to act those out are still within you. Whether it be the, the the speech of a viper or the stench of an open grave, we're only one conversation away from that happening. And defeat, the to the swift, to shed blood, how many, not physical violence, but how many acts of violence to the emotional state or the spiritual state of Christians has occurred because we've allowed the remaining remnants of our sin to control us and not the love of Christ. But not only do we see the direction of the wicked, they travel down uh, the road of destruction. Not only do we see the carnage that they leave in their wake, misery, ruin. And by the way, you can take these applications and take it right home in the context of your family. Is that we can look and see the carnage that could have happened or did happen as a result of an unrestrained tongue. Or actions that were vindictive. Actions even of neglect of reconciliation because of the ugliness of pride that still lies within the heart of even the redeemed. But there's something else. Look at verse 17. There's not only the direction that the wicked take, the carnies that the wicked leave, but the ignorance that the wicked have. And the way of peace they have not known. And the way of peace they have not known. To not known is to be ignorant. To not know is to lack knowledge. And this ignorance that Paul mentions of the wicked is the ignorance of those outside of Christ not knowing the path of peace. He makes another direct quote. It's from the beginning of Isaiah 59, 8. The way of peace they do not know. Now the peace that Paul was referring to here, and we're going to mention a couple different types of peace, and that will unfold more as we look into the letter to the Romans. But the peace in verse 17 is to find this harmonious relations. It's not this settled feeling of peace. We'll talk about experiential peace here in a minute. He's talking about harmonious relations that are free from disputes. Chapel Hill Church didn't have that. And there are Christians, even Christians perhaps under the sound of my voice, that you don't have that either. But the point that Paul makes here is that those outside of Christ... They don't have peace. They don't have relational peace. And they don't have relational peace, first, vertically with God, and secondly, horizontally, they don't have peace. And God has made it very clear, again from Isaiah 57, that the wicked will not know peace. The wicked can fabricate or try whatever they want to do to have peace, and they will never, ever obtain it. In 5721 of Isaiah, there is no peace, says God, for the wicked. And the reason why is because they don't know the Prince of Peace. There is no way for a human being to know vertical peace, reconciliation with God, or the power to maintain harmonious relationships horizontal apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no way. And if you're outside of Christ today and you're looking for peace, you're looking for it in all the wrong places. You can't find peace in the pleasures of the world. You can't find peace in human relationships. You can't find peace on achievements. You can't find peace in anything under the sun apart from a living, vital, newborn experience with Jesus Christ, period. That is what God has ordained. The pathway of peace is singular. And the wicked have no idea. That's why you see all these foolish attempts to find meaning in life, to find purpose in life, to quiet fears, to quiet disappointments. Everything they try, it all leads to what Solomon says, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. And Paul would say that the way of peace they have not known. And I want to identify with you three of these relational aspects of peace that the wicked do not know. And if you're a Christian, I want you to praise God that he's introduced you to the Prince of Peace. And I want you to look at the aspects of this peace that we're we're going to identify that the wicked don't have. And let that lead to praise because you know the prince of peace. But let it also deepen your burden to where you lie awake at night. Crying out for the souls out there who don't know peace. The first thing that we see. Is that the wicked are ignorant of judicial peace. Of judicial peace. After Paul is done expounding the answer. The, the answer to Romans one eighteen to Romans 3.20, he begins to unfold justification by faith. He gives the example of Abraham, and we start shouting glory because the gospel is starting to be unfolded. And then he would say by way of conclusion in Romans 5, one, therefore, therefore because of Romans 3.21 up to the end of chapter 4, therefore we have been justified by faith. We have peace. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only time in Scripture peace with God appears. Now, it's a dominant theme throughout. Words like reconciliation, removing the hostility, killing the hostility, reestablishing the relationship. Paul would say that it is the justified who have peace with God. It's not the religionist trying to find peace. It's not the moralist trying to appease a conscience leading to peace. The wicked are ignorant. The fact is, and that's why he spends all this time condemning the wicked, is that he brings them to bear, is that you don't have a reconciliatory peace with God, meaning that you're guilty and you're in his courtroom and you are condemned. This is not a piece of experience. This is not a piece of feeling, for lack of a better term. This is a peace that is declared by God between you and Him. It's irrespective of your feelings and your emotions. It is what theologians call justification. The peace through justification. And it is the most urgent and necessary work done between God and man. If you're here today and you don't know this peace with God... Your most urgent and important need right now is for God to grant you repentance and you faith looking unto the Lord Jesus and you begging and receiving from Him the gift of justification by faith that makes you right with God without a single effort of work on your part. That's the only way to have judicial peace. God has given us a law. We'll look at that again in a couple weeks. He's given us a law that we cannot keep He's given us a perfect holy law that brings no mercy. And he brings that law to bear upon the conscience of the sinner saying, You have no peace, you can't have peace if you come by way of my Son who is the Prince of Peace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Paul declares, For he himself is our peace. Christ is the judicial peace gift that God gives. Isaiah 53, upon him was, chastis- was the chastisement of us placed upon him. His wounds we were healed. His chastisement brought us peace. And friends, I can't stress this enough. The entrance of the Christian life is an entrance to making judicial peace with God. What follows will be the experiential peace. Peace. But first and foremost is you are estranged from your God if you're not a Christian and that you cannot make peace with him. If he isn't the initiator of peace, there will be no peace. And what has he done? He sent the Prince of Peace. Well, there's a the second thing that the wicked are ignorant of. They're not, only, they're, they're not only are ignorant of judicial peace with God, they're not in a right vertical relationship. The secondly, the wicked are ignorant as Paul would say, they know not the way of peace. They're ignorant of experiential peace. I want to explain that for a minute. If I was alone with you and we were sitting around having coffee and I said, hey, give me a definition of the joy of the Lord, what would you tell me? I think you'd fumble. You would fumble to describe the joy of the Lord. It goes beyond a feeling, but it includes a feeling. You would not be able to give me an, an apt description of the joy of the Lord. In just simple objective terms. But you would tell me this I don't know how to explain it, but I know when I have it. I don't know how to give you the right definition, but I know when I don't have it. It's the same thing with this experiential peace. Paul would tell us in Ephesians, uh, Philippians chapter 4 rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice and let your reason be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And now listen to this, and you know this verse. And the peace of God, which every single person understands, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now somebody should have stood up and said, hey Jim, that's not right. Thank you. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Friends, like the joy of the Lord, you can't define for me the peace that passes all understanding, but you know when you have it. And Paul would say that the wicked are ignorant of peace. They're ignorant of the experiential peace. Well, how do I know that's true of the wicked? B.B. Warfield says this is a subjective sense of the consciousness of peace with God. It actually flows from, Judicial peace. You know you're justified and it leads to a peace of conscience. A peace of experience. When Jesus was leaving in the upper room discourse, he said numerous things over and over to his disciples for their encouragement. One of the repeated themes was peace. Joy, peace, love, presence, In John 14, 27, Jesus says to these fearful disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. In John 16, 33, I I said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. How many times have you been overwhelmed with anxiety and depression and discouragement in your walk with the Lord, and the Lord has granted you the peace that passes all understanding that calms you down? How many times have you been overwhelmed, drowning in life, many, many um, uh, difficult circumstances? And you've cried out to the Lord, and you've, you've, you've done Psalm 37. You've not fret. You've committed. You've trusted Him. And how many times has He washed over your soul with the peace that passes understanding? That's what Paul says. says the wicked doesn't have. They don't have judicial peace. They don't have experiential peace. And friends... Our world is doing everything it possibly can to get peace of conscience, to get peace within, and they never can find it. I won't go through all the list of things that they use. You can see it. And there's a proper use of medicine. There's a proper suit, but I wonder sometimes if we're trying to medicate too much what could really be accomplished by trust. Now again, don't don't email me and say, I'm not against drugs, I'm not against doing that. But I wonder sometimes if a heavy dose of repentance and trust would release some of our anxiety and, and worry. But nevertheless, the, the the wicked have nothing. They have to resort to worldly means because that's all they have. And at the end of the day, it doesn't work. The wicked do not know, do not know experiential peace. And thirdly, the wicked are ignorant of relational peace. It ties into judicial. But relational peace, I'm looking at it from the standpoint of horizontal. You know what is so refreshing? It's difficult, but refreshing as a Christian is that we don't have to leave anything unreconciled in our relationships. And how many times, and you look around the landscape, families that have gone decades of of fractured relationships, they don't make peace. James says in chapter 4, the principle applies. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not your passions that are worth in you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You adulterous people. The application, or I should say the principle that applies out of that, is the wicked, all they have is passions. All they have is lust. All they have is murder. Feet swift to violent. And so there is no relational peace. Sadly, I've seen it too often that there's relational peace among people when you're doing things I want you to do. When everything's falling in line the way I want it, then we got peace. But woe be to the time that you go against what I want. Or you don't agree with me. Or worse yet, you've hurt me so bad, I'm not reconciling with you. That should never be said of a Christian. And so then we find then that the wicked, they're ignorant of peace. They know not the peace of God judicially. They know not the peace of God experientially. And they know not the peace of God relationally. And this is the description of the totally depraved. The direction they go, the carnage that they leave, and the ignorance that they have. And then briefly look at verse 18, because verse 18, and I'm winding down with this, and I really am winding down with this. 18 is a summary statement. It's a summary statement of the whole thing. Why is society like it is? Why is there violence everywhere? Why is there carnage everywhere? Why is there no peace? It's because there is no fear of God. There is no fear of God. And what is equally disturbing, not only is the culture lacking the fear of God, but I believe that's one of the greatest needs of the church of Jesus Christ is to recover the fear of God. The fear of God that permeates our worship. The fear of God that orchestrates and drives our lives. The fear of God that is pure, like John read in Psalm 19. The fear of God that is inseparably linked to the love of God. And next week, we're going to look at the ungodly's attitude. They have no fear of God and make application for us as his people. Father, thank you so much for uh, the truth. Thank you that you have shown us the state of the wicked. And for us who know you, we praise you that you've delivered us from that by unmerited, unearned favor through the Lord Jesus. And, Father, may you make us keenly aware and watchful in our own lives that though we may have been delivered from those things, the potential to fall prey to those is still alive. And may we also, Father, rejoice in the peace that you've given us in Christ. May it rule our hearts in times we're tempted to be anxious or worrisome. And may we look to the world that knows no peace, and may we be vehicles to carry the gospel of the Prince of Peace. Make us a church so mindful of the loss all around us. And that we would be a people of peace, taking Him who is peace to those who need peace. In Jesus' name, amen.